Our Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight in Jesus' name. We ask that as you speak to us, we would not let anything get in the way of us hearing your word. So if we have something, some kind of blockage in our ears, Lord, just unblock all of that. If there's something in our heart that's getting in the way uh, of us hearing from you, please remove that. If we're distracted, then focus us. If we're worried, calm us. If we're down, lift us up. Wherever we are, whatever we are, Lord, sharpen our focus so that tonight, at the very least, we can hear whatever it is that you have to say. And I, I'm always interested, and you know this, Lord, that I can preach one thing and people will hear another, but somehow it was what they were supposed to hear, so that's okay. Tonight, may we all hear whatever it is that we're supposed to hear. Guide us now. We would humble ourselves before you if we really could, but we, we bow in your presence. Pray that you would take our hearts. Speak to us and mold us and shape us and save us. Life will go on after these minutes here. But may it go on with us knowing whom we have believed and trusting in your word. We pray with thanks tonight. In Jesus' name, please say, Amen. There are moments along the timeline of human history when events take place that prompt us to look deep inside our hearts. Or at least they should. If you've ever visited Auschwitz, then you will, or another such place like Dachau or Flossenburg or wherever, then you'll have wondered how human beings could possibly have treated other human beings so, well, inhumanely. Of course, I could mention the Holocaust, and I find this interesting. I could mention the Holocaust in your hearing, and you would say, oh, yes, the Holocaust. And that was terrible. And then I could mention Srebrenica, and you would say, what? What? What, what was that place? And then I say, it's in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Srebrenica was a little town in the east of that country, right over there by Serbia. And you start to recognize something. And then I say, don't you remember Radovan Karadzic and Ratko Mladic? And you say, oh, those names sound familiar. And I say, well, they should, because they were responsible for the massacre of thousands and thousands of men and boys in Srebrenica, a town that you have forgotten, even though it was on the nightly news many nights in a row. And you say, oh yes, oh, oh, oh yes. And then you get out your phone and you Google Bosnia because you don't know where it is anyway. That's this world. The world in which we live, we can lurch from one disaster to another and fail to remember them because they stack up so fast. And we don't want to really remember them all because doing so could be traumatic. You remember when a terrorist attack used to be on the front page of the news. Now somebody can walk into a marketplace and detonate a bomb kill themselves and 50 other people, and it may or may not be reported. That's how it is. You remember that scoundrel walked into a church and shot nine people dead? Remember that? Or are you thinking of the school in Florida where about 15 people were shot dead? Or are you forgetting, actually, that in Las Vegas, somebody got into a hotel room and started picking people off who were attending a country music concert, and what was it? Was it 50 people died? Was it more? I don't know. I, I honestly don't remember. And I don't want to sound disrespectful of the dead, but I just don't 
I remember that it was 50 people who died in the Pulse nightclub. I even remember its name. 51 people now dead in a shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand. And these shootings don't seem to take place in the murder capitals like Washington, D.C. and Newark, New Jersey and Baltimore. They have problems of their own. It doesn't seem to take place on the south side of Chicago, but these mass killings take place in places like Hob- just outside of Hobart in Tasmania. Norway, 70 people dead. I've been to Auschwitz twice. No one should ever go there. I've been to Auschwitz twice. Everyone should go there. You see it and you say, how? My wife was there taking photographs through a glass wall, a glass display case, and she was taking photographs. She was focusing in on the subject matter, and it was then that she just stopped and her heart froze. Tears welled up in her eyes and ran down her face. She realized that the shoes she was photographing were children's shoes, even infants' shoes. These were all people who ended up going up a chimney as smoke. Because of the unthinkable things that happened, not actually so much in Auschwitz, but at its sister camp, 1,500 meters or so away, Birkenau. I was in a museum in Sarajevo last year. We filmed a television program there. There were maps and photographs and actual paraphernalia from the whole tragic business of the war and the senseless killing that took place there. Many people have forgotten. If we're not careful, we'll forget all about the fact that somewhere between half a million and a million Rwandans were killed in the genocide there in 1994. You know, there are people who cannot forget. Just two weeks ago, a man came up to me and I said to him, uh, he said, your sermon really spoke to me. And I said, where are you from? He said, Burundi. And I said, tell me what happened. And he said, my family was killed. Who was killed? He said, everyone. My mother, my father, my grandparents, my brothers, my sisters. I'm the only one who made it out alive. There are people who cannot forget because they lived through this. People who lived through this are in our midst. You'll hear stories and you wonder to yourself, how could that happen? But we've forgotten. We've forgotten what happened in Chile under Pinochet. We've forgotten. We've forgotten what happened in Guatemala. The same people who remember Hitler often forget that Stalin's deeds made Hitler's deeds look amateurish, and I mean no offense, I'm talking about the scale. What Hitler did, Stalin did and did again, but we forget. What do you have to have in your heart to do this? In Guatemala, thousands of people were killed in terrible circumstances, but we forget because history keeps secrets. We likely have forgotten the sinking of the Sultana. Now, this was an accident, a tragic accident. This was not ethnic ethnic cleansing. This was not mass killing. But we've forgotten. In 1865, this country's civil war came to an end. President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. The Sultana was a steamship that plied the waters of the Mississippi between St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. On this particular day, it had 2,300 Union prisoners of war on board, just released and headed for home. The boat should only have had 400 men on board. You don't need me to tell you how this ends. You already know, don't you? But I will tell you anyway. At 2 o'clock in the morning of April the 27th, a boiler exploded. Fire swept through the steamship. By daybreak, 1,700 of the 2,300 men on board were dead. How did we not know this before now? Well, the day before the ship sank, John Wilkes Booth, the man who killed Lincoln, had died He was shot dead. 
the deaths of 1,700 men somehow escaped the attention of the nation. Terrible things can happen, and we say to ourselves and to each other, how in the world? But what's really interesting is that things can happen we shouldn't forget, but we might fail to remember. Today, these things come together. Something we should never forget. At the same time, it's something far too few people remember. In many ways, it's like it never even happened. Ask around. And as you will do, you will discover that the person you ask about this has no knowledge of it at all. Nineteen times out of twenty. In 1921, people who in most cases would have been considered decent, law-abiding, upstanding citizens took part in a massacre. Three hundred people were murdered. Many more were injured. Property was destroyed on a massive scale. Not only houses, but businesses and hotels and theaters and personal possessions and more. Completely destroyed. And as if to rub salt into the wounds of those who had been so spectacularly mistreated, insurance companies refused to pay out the victims of this unfathomable horror. It also seems that there was a concerted effort to keep help from arriving to assist the victims. 10,000 people or so were left homeless, on top of the 300 or so who were killed. 40 or so city blocks were burned to the ground. And so where did this happen? Let's wonder out loud. Maybe it was the killing fields of Cambodia. Maybe this was in Uganda under Idi Amin's awful rule. Maybe this was in war-torn Yugoslavia. Certainly sounds like the sort of thing that might have happened in the old Soviet Union. Was it? Was it? No. No, it was not. No, this was the largest civil disturbance in the history of these United States. In 1921, Greenwood, Oklahoma, Greenwood was a suburb of Tulsa, was a prosperous community. It had its own hospital. It had many doctors, including a nationally renowned surgeon. It had a library and a school and two theaters and two hotels and a wide range of other businesses and services. And you're not surprised because what suburb doesn't have this stuff? This was 1921. This was Oklahoma. This was the United States. And Greenwood was 100% black. But it was prosperous. So prosperous that it was referred to nationally as the Black Wall Street. It was so uh, prosperous that Jews who could not borrow money from racist white people turned to the African Americans in Greenwood and went there to borrow money because there was money in Greenwood and there was plenty of it. But on Memorial Day weekend of that year, 1921, Greenwood's prosperity came to an awful, abrupt, and a very final end. Now let me give you some background as to why this might have taken place. At that time, lynching was a common occurrence in the United States. Between 1882 and 1968, between 1882 and 1968, how long ago was that? There's an answer, not long. Between 1882 and 1968, there were around 5,000 known lynchings in the United States. What kind of lynchings did I say? Known. Undoubtedly, there were many more, maybe even thousands more, maybe, that never made the record. Do the math, and you will discover that that is one lynching a week. 
every week for 86 years. And they occurred in 40 states. Experts agree there were undoubtedly more. Almost three-quarters of the people who were lynched were black. They were not all black. About 25% lynching victims were white. Lynching, as if you need me to explain it to you, was murder carried out by a mob. It was not justice. Justice would have been justice. This was mob justice, mob injustice. Let me correct myself. It often occurred with the full cooperation of law enforcement. Often it did not. Truth be told, there was frequently nothing law enforcement could do. The mob would come to the jailhouse, the courthouse, the whatever house, and would say to the sheriff, hand him over, sheriff. It would be too bad if we had to lynch him and you. And so what could in those circumstances a sheriff do? But there were times that lynchings were carried out with the full cooperation of law enforcement officials. And while, of course, there were many, many, many people who were utterly and totally repulsed by lynchings, frequently huge crowds would gather to watch this disgraceful spectacle. And often mothers and fathers would bring their sons and their daughters. And I don't mind reminding you that lynching, photo, let me say this again, that photographs of lynchings were often turned into postcards that were sent by people who could only be described as utterly immoral to other people just like you would send a birthday card or a postcard from the beach. In 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, white Tulsans lynched a young white man named Roy Belton. Roy Belton had murdered a taxi driver. Yes, he had. And so these white Tulsans apprehended him. They drove him a couple of miles out of town. They hanged him from a tree. Law enforcement officials were there directing the traffic. But black Tulsans, specifically those that lived in Greenwood, figured something out. They reasoned that if white Tulsans were prepared to lynch a white man, it was absolutely guaranteed that they were prepared to lynch a black man. And it was not long before their fears were realized. Let me tell you what happened. On Monday, May the 30th, 1921, a 19-year-old black shoeshine boy named Dick Rowland entered an elevator at the Drexel Building, 319 South Main Street in Tulsa. Now, the reason Dick Rowland entered that elevator was that he needed to use a bathroom. Of course, he could not use the white bathrooms out there. He had to use the colored bathroom, and there was one up on the top of, on the top floor of the Drexel building. And by the way, let me make a suggestion to you. If you would like an interesting experience, I'll just call it interesting. You, you, you can replace that with an adjective of, of your own conjuring. About 45 minutes from here is a university called Ferris State University. And in the library of Ferris State University, there is, the, there is the museum called the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia. It shouldn't be eye-opening if only we remembered our history, but it is. It's a shocking thing, and it's a walk back through the good old days of American history. Let's remember, ladies and gentlemen, there, there was plenty about the good old days, that was not good at all. There are many Americans who remember the good old days as the bad old days. Yes, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. You know the folks in Texas, now they were smart. You know the slaves, most of them couldn't read. So if you didn't tell them they were free, they didn't even know they were free. And that's why in some segments of the African-American community every year, there's a holiday known as what? A celebration known as what? 
Juneteenth. Because it was on June, or was it the 19th? I should remember, but I don't. Finally, word made it to the slaves in Texas. Y'all are free. Sorry we didn't tell you, but technically you've been free for two years. If they don't know, then they can't be free. How's that for justice? How's that for emancipation? Yes, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, and then you ought to do a study if you've forgotten, and if you find it uncomfortable, then you really need to do the study. Find out what was done in Alabama to keep black people from voting. Oh, my goodness. Find out why Dr. King and all them folks marched on Selma, Alabama. Find find out about Willie Lee Jackson, who was shot dead by a racist cop who actually ended up serving five months of his six-month prison sentence. Many decades, I shouldn't say many decades, but decades later. When we remember the history of these United States, my goodness, it ought to do something to us. It ought to settle in us that we are bound and determined that in no way, shape, or form should history ever be allowed to repeat. But there was Dick Rowland getting in an elevator to make his way up to the uh, top floor of the Drexel building. And if I did not finish my thought, what I meant to say was Jim Crow existed all the way down through the decades, many decades after slaves were freed and black people were told that they had rights now like white people. Theoretically, yes. In practice, no. Not in many states. So Dick Rowland enters the elevator. Precisely what happened is not known. But on that elevator, there was a 17-year-old young lady named Sarah Page, and of course she was white, and she was operating the elevator. When Dick Rowland got on the elevator, she let out a shriek. Oh, no, no, she didn't shriek because he walked in. It is thought, in fact, it is certain, I believe, that uh, Sarah Page and Dick Rowland knew each other. But something evidently happened. The thought is that the elevator lurched. And this wasn't some wonderful brand new Otis elevator or Schindler elevator like you get in when you go to a hotel or, or a department store or something or other. This was a clunky old elevator. It was 1921. The thinking is that it lurched and either he fell forward towards her and she went, oh, or she stumbled and she shrieked. Dick Rowland might have been young, but he was not stupid. He knew that if a young black man gets on an elevator occupied by a young white woman and that young white woman shrieks for any reason, that he had better get out of there fast. And he did. He ran from that place as quickly as he could, but there were witnesses. They heard the shriek. They saw the young black man running. They put two and two together. It didn't even matter what two and two added up to because in their minds, he was black. She shrieked. He was guilty. Of what? They interviewed Sarah Page and she said, no, I cannot testify against him because he did nothing to harm me. Her clothes were not ruffled. She had not been harmed. But why let the facts get in the way of a good lynching? This was Oklahoma. It was 1921. There was a newspaper called the Tulsa Tribune, and it was just as racist as you could imagine. Awful things were printed on the front page of that paper. The fans of hatred, the flames, I'm sorry, the flames of hatred had been fanned. And so, of course, investigators, police went to Greenwood, where Dick Rowland lived with his grandmother, and they apprehended him, and they took him down to the Tulsa County Courthouse. You know, the Tulsa Tribune had a headline on the front page that day. It said, to lynch Negro tonight. That was the banner headline. So what do you think was going to happen in Tulsa that night? 2,000 men, I don't need to mention that they were white, gathered outside the Tulsa County Courthouse, demanding that Dick Rowland would be handed over to him. Well, to the credit of the law enforcement officials, they were not of a mind to hand young Mr. Rowland over. And there was somebody else who were not prepared to let justice be subverted. The Greenwood men. A number of them went down to the courthouse determined that Dick Rowland would not be handed over to the white mob. Many of them were World War I veterans. Imagine men who had served their country. 
And they went down to the courthouse, many of them armed with weapons. They confronted the white mob of more than 2,000 in the tense tension, in the tension that ensued, a shot was fired, someone was hit, he fell to the ground. And if you will pardon the colloquialism, all hell broke loose. That mob decided they would teach these uppity Negroes from Greenwood a lesson. And they marched to Greenwood with their weapons and their ammunition. And those who didn't have guns stole them as gun shops and sporting goods stores were looted and ransacked. They stole guns and they stole ammunition and they marched up to Greenwood. And they were determined that they would do what they would do. I've been to Greenwood. We filmed there. I have stood on the streets where the houses stood. I stood on the streets where the, the rioting took place, the massacring took place. They did a thorough job, these white men. Greenwood was burned to the ground completely. 23 black churches reduced to ashes. An hospital, a funeral home, a school, a theater, doctors and lawyers' offices, hotels, grocery stores, restaurants, hundreds of homes completely destroyed. Homes were looted in the process of their being destroyed, and anything that could be taken was taken. 300 Greenwood residents were killed for no other reason than the color of their skin. I'm not here tonight to tell you something that you should already know. I'm here to ask you a question. The question is, what makes it possible for someone to commit a crime like that? What does it take to be a member of a community and turn on members of your own community, people with whom, although in a very limited way, you interacted. There were men in that mob whose shoes Dick Rowland had shined. There were men descending on Greenwood that night with shiny shoes because a Greenwood community member had shined those shoes, and they were heading to Greenwood with a greenwood shine on their shoes, determined to kill. Of course, there were many factors that came together contributing to people joining in that mob attack. The race-baiting newspaper, the Tulsa Tribune. The racism that was endemic in society at that time. Jealousy, jealousy of the wealth of black Tulsans. The Ku Klux Klan, they say there were 2,000 Klan members in Tulsa at the time. But none of that can possibly serve as an excuse for what was an absolute atrocity. You think people don't know the difference between right and wrong? Let me give you another event that happened in 1921. In 1921, two Italian-American immigrants were uh, arrested for a crime which they likely did commit. Their names were Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. It's a well-known case. Evidently, there was an explosion. Someone or someone's died. They were arrested. Many people believed they were uh, not guilty, but there were many people convinced that they were absolutely guilty. And this was kind of split along political lines. There was socialism involved, and people who were opposed to socialists, and so on and so forth. These men were arrested. They were sentenced to death. But people rose up. They said, we cannot possibly allow a miscarriage of justice to take place. We cannot possibly allow on American soil injustice to be perpetrated. Even uh, 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 Albert Einstein signed a petition appealing that these young men not be put to death. And when they were executed in 1927, 200,000 people came out afterwards to watch the funeral procession. This was a big, big deal because there were people who believed, right or wrong, that injustice had been served. A miscarriage of justice had been carried out. But 1,400 miles away, right around the same time, 300 people were murdered in cold blood, and the silence was deafening. 
There was so little said about the Greenwood Massacre that children born in Tulsa at around that time or in the years that followed were raised completely oblivious to the fact that this had happened right on their back doorstep. No one talked about it. It was not taught in school. It did not ever enter into a history curriculum. People in, Tulsans zip, in Tulsa zipped their mouths shut. Nothing was spoken about this. It wasn't until 1995, more than 70 years after this devastating crime, that the Oklahoma legislature created the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. Only then would Americans learn about what actually happened in their backyard more than seven decades before. So what does it take for a person to go there? You might say, racism. Nope. That is not the answer. It might seem like a good answer until you realize that not every racist takes a gun and shoots somebody else. Burns down their home. Steals their possessions. And by the way, let me say this about racism. We sing this, and, and, and racism is a complicated thing, but at the end of the day, it's not. But we sing this song, when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. If you look within your heart and you find racism there, stop singing the song because you're not going. It's just that simple. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, let me say something here. Racism isn't only about white people hating black people. There are plenty of black racists who hate white people. And let me say something to you very clearly. The sin of slavery does not give a black person the right to be racist towards anyone. Not even slavery does. Because Jesus said, if you are not prepared to forgive a person who wrongs you, God ain't going to forgive you. He didn't say, unless, of course, something really bad has been perpetrated against your people. There are black people who hate Latinos, Latinos who hate Asians, Asians who hate everyone. Asians who hate this or that, white folks who hate Asians, people who hate Hispanics, Hispanics who hate this, that, and the other. It's all racism, and it's all wrong. Why would you hate your brother or your sister? Because at the end of the day, we have the same grandpa. And I don't mean Adam, I mean Noah. You can bring it closer to our day. Adam, sure. The Bible says that we have been, we were created of one blood. Cut a man. No matter what color he is on, okay, don't cut a man. Don't cut a man. Say that again. When a surgeon cuts a patient open, <laughs> what was that for? Bradshaw told me to. <laughs> Pardon me. When a surgeon operates on an individual, it doesn't matter what color he or she is on the outside, all the same color on the inside. Is it mob mentality that drives a person to commit such an act? No, that cannot be an adequate answer. Because in spite of being egged on by others, everybody in Tulsa that night knew the difference between right and wrong. In fact, there were many white people who sheltered African Americans. Kept them safe. Hide here. You'll be safe. We'll protect you. I don't mean there were enough white people doing that, but there were, there were those that did. We reflect on Greenwood in 1921, and we can be offended, and we should. We can be disgusted, and we should. We can be appalled, and we should. But if all we do is look back without looking within, we are making an enormous mistake. My brother, my sister, the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's not talking about the white heart or the black heart or the Asian heart or the Hispanic heart only. That's speaking about every human heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 19, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. And Paul wrote to the Galatian church and he said, The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, 
uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, this is quite a list, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. He gets to the end of that list, he says, oh, listen, I'll run out of ink if I keep writing every sin of the human heart, and such like. There is more. My friend, human beings are capable of unimaginably bad behavior. Most people, I'm certain, would say somewhat piously and self-righteously, oh, if I were, was a white man and I had been in Greenwood that night, I would not have participated in what that mob did. I will say to you tonight without blushing, the chances are if you were white and in Greenwood that night, you probably would have. Not definitely would have, but probably would have. You know that among the people in Rwanda who were slaughtering their neighbors were church members. Among those were members of your church. So you aren't to sit there tonight and tell me, oh no, I would be the exception to the rule. I would pray that you might be. I would pray that you would rise up against that mob and say in Jesus' name, no. But when the heat gets turned up and people around you are acting in one way or another, you mean that all of Hitler's inner circle, they were all people with, with filthy hearts? You know, I don't think they were born that way. I don't think they were all kids on the playground who were bullying other kids. You know that Hitler was decorated during World War I twice for bravery. No one ever reported him torturing kittens or pulling the wings off butterflies. No, Hitler, in fact, had applied for admission to a prestigious art institute in Austria, in Vienna, Austria. History would have turned out very, very differently if he had been accepted and not rejected. No, this lurks deep within the human heart, any selfish human heart, any heart that is not fully surrendered to God. It lurks there. The human heart is a fascinating thing. It is not only bad people who do bad things. The people who yelled, crucify him, crucify him, the night before Jesus' death were not all, by society's measure, bad people. It is likely that there were people in that group shouting, crucify him, that Jesus had himself healed. It's very likely. Horrific crimes are not always perpetrated by horrific people. Two days before Valentine's Day, 1993, a young mother shopping at a mall just outside Liverpool, England, went into a store with her little boy. James was two years of age. And you know how a young mother watches her child like a hawk and hovers over and protects and so on and so on and so on, but the devil watches too. And in the moment that she was distracted, the moment that she was distracted, Two 10-year-old boys lured little James Bulger away. It would not be appropriate for me to talk to you about the details of that little boy's murder. Ten-year-old killers. How in the world? Don't think these things can't happen. Don't think that your heart is not capable of going down a road that you would think unthinkable. Don't think that human beings today don't do the most ghastly things. Lynching may not happen in its common form. Some would argue that it still happens, but via other means. Lynching may not happen as a phenomenon here in these United States as such, but in other parts of the world, in Latin America, for example, it's a huge issue. People say they're sick of the police not uh, administering justice, the courts not apprehending criminals. And so things like this happen. Yes, that's kind of a mob party, a big gathering of young people. And a girl says, my cell phone has been stolen. And they say, he's got your cell phone. And the mob says, let's get him and let's fix him. They beat the boy to death. Of course he didn't have the cell phone. But this happens again and again and again and again and again. One public prosecutor in Brasilia said Brazilians are losing their capacity to feel empathy for the strangers continually slain around them. You see, we get worn down, beaten down, ground down. 
Did you know that the devil is working in your life now? Now, the defenses may be up and maybe he can't get through, but he's working on you to, 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 to grind you down. We see pornography and we... Because it's everywhere. We see immodesty and often fail to notice it. We hear about hideous crimes and instead of them really being jarring, they're not anymore because if there hasn't been a mass shooting in the United States recently, I mean, check your watch. Bound to be one soon because these happen with alarming frequency. We hear about injustice and we shrug. That's just the way it is. There is incivility in this country on a scale, I speak generally, that we have not seen before. I speak generally. And we've become accustomed to it, to the point that we join in the incivility because it's fashionable and acceptable to vent your spleen against somebody, particularly if they differ from you politically. <clears throat> what do you think happens in a world when a 17-year-old girl, <clears throat> and I think it's okay to call a 17-year-old a boy or a girl, when a 17-year-old girl is suffering from depression and she needs to find a physician in her country, the Netherlands, who will sign something that says, yes, we should euthanize this young woman. And she was euthanized. Slain. Now, now, you need to know some of the rest of the story. She had had some terrible things perpetrated upon her. She'd been through some very, very difficult circumstances. But do you end somebody's life because they're suffering depression? What's wrong with us? What's wrong in society where there are people openly advocating the abortion of babies that are at nine months and in the womb? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a theological statement. What part of thou shalt not kill do we not understand? And I don't know why the Catholic Church is so loud about abortion and our church is so silent about the subject. I don't understand that, and I never will. If I shoot your one-day-old baby dead, they'll put me away for life. And a physician who took an oath to first do no harm can end the life of a nine-month-old developed child in a fetus. And people are going to high-five him and congratulate him for defending a woman's right to choose. Wherever you stand on that, God, help us if there are people who stand on the other side. Wherever you stand on that, what I'm suggesting to you, what I'm stating to you, is we are living in a world where the devil is desensitizing us. Desensitizing us to immorality, to virtues like honesty, for the sanctity of life, the devil is desensitizing us. Why is he doing that? Because he's got to do something to condition an entire culture so that when the shoe drops and the world turns and says, here is a group of religious fanatics that don't deserve to live, people will join in and say, crucify them, crucify them. He's doing an outstanding job at bringing society to the precipice of the kind of hate that's going to burst forth like an avalanche. And if you think that you are immune, you've heard the statistics. The average child has watched, witnessed X amount of murders on television by the time they're whatever years old. And people take money, research money, government money, to do a study. And the study says... Does watching violent video games harm children? I tell you what, I'll save you the trouble. You give that money to It Is Written, we will do the study. In fact, let me do the study now. Oh man, I got the study right now. Ah, I have found it. 
The Bible says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We paraphrase that and we say that by beholding we become what? There you go. Now, I don't want to get off track here, but that's why you shouldn't always carp and criticize about the church. If all you do is behold the problems in the church, you become a problem in the church. Because by beholding, you become changed. Hey, university research department, I've done your research for you. Right here, inspired by God, by beholding, we become changed. Of course it warps people's minds. What sort of fool do you have to be to sit and wonder? We are plowing headlong towards a time of trouble such as never was. You can understand the mentality, the frustration that lies with this stuff. I'm going to strike him back. I'm going to get him. I'm going to make him pay. The courts didn't get him. We're going to get him. That boy killed the taxi driver. Let's take justice in our own hand. That young black shoeshine boy, okay, he didn't do nothing, but let's get him anyway. You can understand that thinking. Sure you can. I don't mean that you can excuse that thinking, but you can understand the thinking. I remember pumping gas. I used to work at a gas station, and it was a Sunday morning, and there I was pumping gas, and uh, a car screeched, actually literally screeched to a halt on the forecourt. I took, what in the world? And another car came up behind him, screeched to a halt. And a great big man mountain of a fellow emerged from out of the second car. I don't know how the car even contained him. He was a South African man. He was an Afrikaner, and I knew that by his accent. And he came up to the first car shouting at the driver. This was road rage before there was a thing called road rage. The driver of the first car did a very dumb thing. He wound down the window. He didn't press a button. He wound down the window. The window was just big enough to accommodate the fist of the second man. Bang! He let him have it. The man's wife screamed, what are you doing? Get away! The man started winding up the window as fast as he could. Stars and Tweety Birds and all of that were flying all around him. You fool! You could have killed us. We have our baby in the car. You could have killed our baby. You get it. You understand. Sure you do. I wonder what happened that night. Undoubtedly, that man was a religious man. More than likely, he had been raised attending the Reformed Church. White South African. <laughs> I mean, it's contradictory. White South Africans were very religious. They weren't all racist, but even the racists were religious. I wonder if that night his wife said to him on the, when their heads were on their pillows, are you proud of what you did today? Do you really need to do that? He knew better. He knew he shouldn't have. But friends, that's not an excuse. When somebody rubs your fur the wrong way, that's not an excuse. That doesn't give you license to strike back. Even if that person is your wife or your husband, or your pastor, or a fellow church member, or someone who works in the conference office, or someone at the division office, or someone at the general conference office, we don't strike back. We are to be made new. Now, I know you could call tonight's sermon, if you wanted to, an exercise in easier said than done. I understand that. But Jesus said... Turn the other cheek. And until we are prepared to do that, we are probably unprepared for eternity. Someone compels you to go a mile, go two. They want to take your tunic, let them have your coat as well. There exists inside every human being the possibility for great evil. And an enemy, the devil, is working constantly to lead you to the place where in a moment, or as the result of the cumulative effect of varying factors, you snap and do something regrettable. We, my brother, my sister, are in a war here. It was once a perfect world, it now is not. That's because the devil came down here determined to get your worship, determined to turn you away from the path of God. He, he doesn't even care if you, if you don't, uh, deny God openly. 
just as long as you do it quietly, incrementally. He doesn't even want you to say no to God. He's probably never going to get you to say no to God, but he might get you to say, not right now, God. He might get you to say, excuse me for a moment, God. He might do that, you understand. Cast out of heaven, here to the earth, wanting to put a barrier between you and God, and sin is that barrier. He was successful. Uh, the first two boys ever born, one of them killed his brother. It was in the fourth chapter of the Bible that we find the first adulterer, Lamech, who also was a murderer. It's in the sixth chapter of the Bible that the Bible says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only, tell me, evil. Evil what? Evil continually. We have been corrupted by sin. We cannot trust ourselves. History proves that if left to itself, human nature is capable only of dark deeds. This deceitful and desperately wicked human heart will eventually choose to express itself in the most negative of fashions. You read about good people that do bad. We've got them in the Bible. King Solomon was good, and then he wasn't. In fact, he was very bad. King David was a good king, and then he went for a walk one night, and his eyes uh, fell upon a beautiful woman bathing herself. Uh, ostensibly, there's no sin in that. Sometimes you cannot help where your eyes land. Sometimes you can, sometimes you cannot. But when his eyes landed where they landed, he should have said, oh my goodness, and done something to preserve the dignity of that lady who had a reasonable right to expect privacy. Instead, he said, who is she? Oh, that's Bathsheba. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Those six words should have stopped him dead in his tracks, but they did not. Because in that moment, David's heart was not surrendered to the will of God. And when your heart is not surrendered to the will of God, you cannot expect much of yourself. The Bible even speaks about our really very low nature when it says, that God knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. That's not a criticism, actually. That's extolling a virtue of Almighty God. He knows exactly what we are and He loves us anyway. But we are just dust. That's all. What's dust and dirt good for? Not much, but it is a good host. And you can plant something in that dirt. You can plant weeds and thorns and briars and brambles if you want or you could plant the good seed of the Word of God. And then that dirt is worth something because it's hosting the Word of Almighty God. There's another challenge that we have as human beings, and I don't mean to digress, so I will try not to. But you want to think about this tawdry Harvey Weinstein affair. No, tawdry is not the right word. Terrible. But do you think no one knew what was going on? We have a really high tolerance for sin when our tolerance should be low. And as a society, we got a super tolerance for sin. So Harvey Weinstein's inner circle clearly knew what he allegedly was doing. Clearly knew. And then you've got all these Hollywood actresses and they're saying, oh, had no idea. Hollywood actors, oh my goodness, what a shock. Liars. People knew. People know. We, 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 we've been joking about the Hollywood casting couch for years. Until now, somebody stood up and said, that's no laughing matter. And we've had to say, oh, I guess you're right. We shouldn't laugh about that. And we shouldn't tolerate that. And we shouldn't enable that. And sins like pornography just run rampant through society and we shrug our shoulders and we say, what can we do anyway? And it's a fair question. I'm not naive enough to believe that hearts are changed by legislation. But hearts can be changed. And I don't know whose heart you can change, but I do know that God can change your heart. We are too late in the history of the human race we are too close to heaven to be dancing with the devil now. <clears throat> I'm not talking about being a goody two-shoes. I'm talking about being a Christian. Someone who wants to experience only the will of God done in his life or her life. So where's the solution? 
Maybe too much time spent on the problem and too little spent on the solution, but you know the solution. The solution is not a solution. The solution is a person. His name is Jesus. A man came to Jesus one night under the cover of darkness. Rabbi, you are this and you are that, and no man can do the miracles you do unless God is with you. And Jesus told Nicodemus what he needed to hear. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. And I hear the voice of God speaking in this place tonight, saying to me and presumably to you, you must be born again. And if you weren't born again today, then get born again sometime real soon. Start your day every day by praying, God, let me be born again again. Let me be baptized with your Holy Spirit again. Be honest with God and tell God that unless He is occupying every recess of your heart, that you are doomed to failure. Doomed. Because that's all we are, is doomed to failure without being filled with the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. This is why we cannot presume to skate by on a half-baked Christian experience. My brother, my sister, don't be half in with God. Don't. It was Peter who said, I don't know the man. And then he said, I don't know the man. And then he said, I blankety blank bleepity bleep don't know the man. Peter who for three and one half years had been intimately acquainted with Jesus, and yet in that moment he denied Christ. Time of trouble coming such as never was since there was a nation. You can talk about the mark of the beast until you are blue in the face. And you might tell me, oh, I know the mark of the beast. It's about a day. I will say, no, it's not. It's about a surrender. When the whole world is going one way and there is a, a few going this way, are you surrendered enough to God that when God's voice says, this is the way, walk ye in it, that you are prepared to go? We must be. we got to be all in with God tonight. We are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that does good. No, not one. We are all in a fix without the Spirit of God working powerfully in our lives. You think you can't become a drunk? You think you can't be unfaithful to the people closest to you in your lives? You think you can't be a thief? You think you can't get hooked on something? Yes, you can. As long as you are not yielded to Jesus, anything can happen. Why does racism, why does hatred exist? It's a simple thing. The heart of a racist is not fully surrendered to the heart of God. Why is the divorce rate so alarmingly high? And I'm not getting on you if you've been through a divorce. In so many cases, you simply couldn't avoid it. But the reason the rate is so high is because you don't have two people in a marriage whose hearts are fully surrendered to God. And selfishness is going to express itself in a certain way. And let me tell you something. Doesn't the fact or ask you something. Doesn't the fact that the majority of those people in the mob in Tulsa that night, the fact that they were church members who went to church every week, doesn't that tell you that church isn't enough to stop a person from doing awful things? As biblical and as appropriate as the, as the institution of church is, church never saved anyone. Church never changed anyone's heart only Jesus does that. Many slave owners were devoutly religious. Hitler's machinery was supported or at least unopposed by the church of his day. The church in the Middle Ages perpetrated crimes against people, largely Protestants, that were so heinous it made what happened in the Black Wall Street look like nothing. And I don't say that to sound disrespectful. The Church of Rome was responsible for the unjust deaths of millions of innocent people. Rome killed Huss and Tyndale and Wycliffe and Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer and so many more. Did everything it could to exterminate Martin Luther. It was only the hand of God that preserved Martin Luther. And by the way, Martin Luther had his problems and they were not insignificant. You see anybody is capable of stooping low. But I want to tell you tonight that God is capable of lifting us up. Come on and say amen.
Christ will change the human heart. Without your heart fully yielded to Jesus, you've got to go in the wrong direction because water only runs downhill and the human heart can only go where it goes. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? Earlier in the same chapter, Paul urged the Roman believers to consider themselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God, and refused to allow sin to reign in their lives. James appealed to his readers, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. One verse later, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. God is calling you to a radical experience where he has you. And if you feel in your heart that you are bound to follow down some certain sinful pathway because of your low blood sugar or because of your upbringing, because of your DNA or because of somebody around you, if you feel like that, remember that God is able to bring you to the place where you cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and you say, oh, that's just the aim. That could never be my experience and that's your problem. Because when you say that can never happen, that will never happen. But when you get on your knees and you say, God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will never stop praying until you change me. You have to give me a new heart. When you pray that prayer, God answers your prayer every single time. Hallelujah. It was God who asked the question, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? With tears rolling down his cheeks, the father of that poor Brazilian boy who was lynched by a mob of his peers said, Not even an animal would do something like that to its own species. So if not an animal, who? Who would do such a thing? The shocking answer is ordinary, everyday people just like you and me. That's who. People who, when they get to the breaking point, fail for some reason to turn to God. Even your troubles and your trials, they push you, don't they? They push you, but where do they push you? You get to choose where they push you. Someone has a trial, a disappointment. Somebody gets let down by the church. Somebody loses a job and they feel like God has abandoned them. And they get pushed and they allow themselves to be pushed away from God. Oh no, that's not the right place to be pushed. Instead, let us allow ourselves to be pushed towards God. God is always God. If you can't see Him, He's there. If you can't feel Him, He's there. Well, if I can't see Him, and if I can't feel Him, what then? You believe. You believe and you know that God is there. He is there. Evil challenges us. It does. But the Bible reassures us. It says in 1 John 4 and verse 4, Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. How big is your God tonight? I know how big your devil is. All I got to do is think about Greenwood, Oklahoma, 1921. And I see again what the devil can do in the lives of people who are largely considered to be good, decent, law-abiding, upstanding. But God hasn't called us to be good. Good people don't go to heaven. God has called us to be holy. God has called us to be righteous. And he said, uh, what? You don't have righteousness? No, Lord, you've called us to be righteous, but we don't have righteousness. What kind of cruel joke is this? God says, I have something for you. It's the righteousness of Christ. Let me put that on. And if you like Joshua and Zechariah, chapter three will only stand and submit if you will not fight, God will clothe you in His righteousness. He will save you, and then He will keep you, because day by day, hour by hour, 
And yes, moment by moment, your heart and God's heart are bound together, knit together, and your life becomes a prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. One day, society is going to be split into two groups, the sheep and the goats, those who have the seal of God and those who have the mark of the beast, the saved and the lost, those who have surrendered to Jesus and those who have not. We cannot fight tomorrow's battles today, but we can invite Jesus to fight today's battles right now. The battle we face is common to everyone. It's the battle of the carnal human heart. But if Jesus has your heart and mine, we can live every day in the confident assurance that our lives are turned in His direction. We will serve the God of heaven. We will, what did we hear sung earlier? We will glorify the King of kings. We will glorify the Lamb. Friend, as we end this camp meeting this year, let our prayer be, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Let not our prayer be, uh, thank you, God, that I'm not like this old publican down here. I'm doing so well. May we pray like the penitent man. God, be merciful to us sinners. And Jesus said, that man went down to his house justified, pardoned, forgiven, saved. Come on, we're going to go home saved tonight. Can you say amen? Let us pray together, our Father in heaven. We take hold of the hand of Jesus tonight. Oh, Lord, it'd be great for me to be able to say, I've done this and that. I'm a fine Christian. I've been in the church all of these years. It'd be great for me to be able to say, Ah, oh, look upon righteous me. But I cannot. Because, Lord, you and I both know the truth about my heart. Everyone here tonight can pray that prayer. Lord, would you please not allow us to rely on our own imagined righteousness. Lord, don't let us be so self-assured about what we are that we fail to see what we really are. We need tonight your mercy, your grace, and your presence in us. Temptation shakes us. Temptation rattles us. Temptation comes after us. But we thank you tonight that we have a great defender in Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Father, we thank you tonight for our Savior. We thank you for His righteousness. We pray, take our hearts. They are your property. We cannot give them. Keep them pure for we cannot keep them for Thee. Save us in spite of ourselves, our weak, unchristlike selves. Mold us, fashion us, raise us into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of Your love flows through our souls. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.